The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello, friends. I'm your host, Chris Thrill. I'm a former Royal Marines commando. I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. That's the little girl that we rescued back in June in Mosul. Now we're back in Iraq and Kurdistan in November. Same year, but five months later. But I just want to recap what, what happened. We did the rescue, got the little girl, I called my wife Karen, and gave the girl to you the casualty collection point. And then General Mustafa began to look, where are her relatives? And he was able to find her grandmother and an aunt down south. Then we came back after the Battle of Mosul was complete. We'd been speaking in the States and tried to track her down. We were tracking down people in Mosul that we'd rescued, and we found most of them. But we still hadn't connected with Demoa, the little girl. Finally had contact with her, and she was brought up to Erbil by Muhammad. How are you, sir? Hey, Chris, how are you, man? Yes. I'm, Tell me about I'm, yourself. Oh, <laughs> I think my listeners have heard enough about me, but uh, I'm a former Royal Marines commando. I live here in uh, in the UK. I've, I've traveled um, across all seven continents. Um, saw a little bit of conflict myself back in the the Northern Ireland War. Um, we're talking quite quite a few years ago now. And how old are you? I'm uh, fifty one now. I oh, you're said, young, man. It's awesome. <laughs> how old are you, if if I may ask? Yeah, sixty. I'm old, man. Except think, my dad would say I'm young. He's ninety one. But I think you uh, you keep. You keep young through doing what you're doing, Dave, don't you? Uh, it's a blessing from God and other people. I'm grateful. Yes. So I have to say thank you. Let me just double check. Uh, Alan Duncan, is, does that name ring a bell to you? Alan's... Uh, yes, Scottish. Yeah, he's over Scottish there. Scottish um, infantry. Yeah, he's um, he's a Scottish infantryman that was with us in um, well, actually, he was in Syria first, and then up on in Bashika, one of the front lines here, the Kurds, and he was with the Kurds through thick and thin, and was a great moral and physical help for them, and became a good friend of ours, and really loves the Kurdish people, 
And it was not only a big help to the Peshmerga and the Kurds inside Kurdistan, but after ISIS was defeated, he went over to Syria to try to help find out what was going on in particular with ISIS. And, and then when, when ISIS were captured or some of the women and children surrendered, trying to rescue Yazidis who'd been captured by them. And he was successful in that. And that, like he told me last night, one of the people that he helped is now getting married. And it brought tears to his eyes and it brought tears to my eyes because it's wonderful to be able to be part of something good. And Alan is part of many things good. And he's a, a good friend. And the Kurds, they kind of get a hard time, don't they, from, um, well, from, from, from the rulers of every country in which they, they reside. Being a, being, a, being a people that live across many countries, am I right? Right. The Kurds are the largest people group in the world that don't have their own state. There's over 20 million Kurds in Turkey. There are two to three million Kurds in Syria, two to three million Kurds in Iran, over five million Kurds in Northern Iraq, Kurdistan. And all these people make up an area really that's Kurdistan, if you looked at the, the people group, but they've never had their own country and they faced persecution by other countries that they're residing in to this day. However, when you look at Northern Iraq, the Kurdish region, KRG, Kurdish Regional Government of Northern Iraq is an autonomous area. It is a very well-functioning area. One of the best functions, if you start, let's say over in, the, on, in Thailand, which is one of the places we're from, or let's say Vietnam, there's an ocean out there. You go from Vietnam, come, come, come. Thailand's democratic country works pretty well. Then you got Burma or Myanmar. No, civil war, 70 years, big problems. Then you have India and Bangladesh. Then you have Pakistan, all kinds of problems. Then you have got Afghanistan. Then you have Iran. And then suddenly you have the Kurdish region of Northern Iraq, pretty good place. Friends of the West, functioning economy, good social services, uh, democracy, and helping other people. It's a bright light. And then you go over to Northeast Syria, Another bright love where people are atheists, agnostics, Muslims, all living together in Northeast Syria. Then you go to Syria proper, no, dictatorship. And then you go to Israel. And regardless of what people think of Israel, it is a democracy. There, there, it is a functioning system. So when you look from Israel all the way over to Vietnam, that's like half the world. Kurdish region is one of the few peaceful functioning places. And so it's a place worth helping. Yes, of course. And I've met, I've been privileged to meet many Kurds. I, I drove to India once and uh, back. So um, got to meet several Kurds on that trip. But also we have them here as refugees. Um, from many, many of this conflict. Maybe I Um, but David, can we go back and just talk about your beginnings? Because you were, was it, was it a ranger? Did I understand that correctly? Right. Well, my beginnings are, I was born in Texas, so I'm a Texan. And my parents took me to Thailand. They're Christian missionaries. My dad fought in the Korean War. 
as a combat engineer officer. My mom was on Broadway as a singer. And my dad went to oil business. My mom kept singing and they met each other. They left all that. They felt God called them to go out. As my dad said, you can stop a man with a bullet, but you won't change his heart. And if I ever go overseas again, my dad said, I want to go with something that changes hearts. And for my father, that was the love of God through Jesus. That's my father's experience. So I grew up as a, a Christian missionary kid in Thailand. I grew up hunting in the mountains with the tribal people that hunt with bows and arrows and crossbows and muskets, catch fish with their bare hands. Amazing upbringing. I had horses. And then when I went to university, I had an Army ROTC scholarship. I went to Texas A&M. I was commissioned as an infantry lieutenant. And I served as a, in the infantry and then in a reconnaissance platoon down in Panama, but all over Central and South America, including uh, counter-narcotics missions in Peru and missions in Honduras, working um, at that time against the different communist insurgents. Then after that, I tried out for the Rangers and I was a platoon leader in the second Ranger Battalion. And after two and a half, three years there, I went out for selection to special forces and I was a detached detachment commander for a strategic reconnaissance team and then a halo or military freefall team. And all that together was just a little, little under 10 years when I thought, okay, I'm about to make major, which is what I finished up as. And now I'm about to go to staff and do a lot more of that. And what should I do God with my life? And I felt, I felt in my heart, you know, I can't prove it that I felt God say, you know, the whole world is God's kingdom. Everybody is important. Everybody's essential. We all have different roles and tasks. So it's not one is holier than the other. Stay in the army and put God first or get out and put God first. It's all needed. And I just prayed and I thought, you know, I'm going to miss the military a lot. Um, probably like you, the military is one of the most ridiculous, crazy, frustratingly stupid things you've ever been part of. And then the next minute, it is the coolest thing you ever did with the greatest people. It's kind of like that, but I'll still miss it. And um, I'll miss the camaraderie, the action, the power that's exhibited, the ability to make a big difference, um, the sheer violence of everything. How awesome. And I know I'll miss that, but I, I want to serve God in a different way. So I got out, I went to seminary, became an ordained minister. But in the middle of that, I met my wife and we were married. And at the same time, my dad contacted me from Thailand saying, there's a tribal group from Burma and Burma is called Myanmar also, 70 yeah. years of conflict now. And, but at this point about 50, because this is 20 something years ago, a tribal group from Burma came out to Thailand, walked two months and met my father and said, we need help. And they saw a picture of me with a green beret in the, in the American military, that's the special forces. And they said, we are mostly an animist people. The, the Wa tribe in particular that came down, they used to be headhunters because they believed the spirits told them to take people's heads off. So they're animists, spirit worshipers. But the foreign minister by now had become a Christian. And he came down and he said, we need Jesus to change our hearts. We can't force anybody to do anything. But we need, but unless you're a warrior, no one's going to listen to you. And he pointed to the picture of me. Who's that guy? Because they know what special forces are. And my dad said, that's my son. He was in special forces. Now he's in seminary. And this tribal leader said, send him. You know, he probably thought I was six foot tall, 250 pounds of muscle. I'm not, I'm a very small little person, <laughs> but I came, my wife and I came and we went into Burma extra legally, no visa, no passport, because we had to go with the resistance controlled. 
And we started walking amongst the people, seeing the fighting, seeing the displacement, seeing the suffering and thinking, we wanna help. We're very small, but we believe God is big and he cares about everybody, regardless of their religion. And he wants everybody to be free. And I'm not sure I'm right about anything, except I know love is real. I know freedom is a product of love. I know forgiveness and reconciliation are the way we wanna go. And I know justice is what we must have. So working with these people, we just started giving, help, giving people medical care. I'm not even a medic. I was a special forces officer and you learn some things, but I'm not a medic. But pretty soon I met local medics, ethnic people from the Karen state. That's another tribe, Sean, Kareni. They were experts and they said, can we join you? And we began to work together to help people. And then after, and we started calling ourselves the Free Burma Rangers. And pretty soon the ethnic resistance leaders, there's over 12 groups, there's actually about 50, but 12 major ones said, we like your holistic relief teams that go into the fighting, give people help and report on what's happening. You help the people and you get the news out. Can you train our teams to do that? So they began to send us some soldiers, some teachers, some pastors, young, fit men and women, mostly men, that came and said, we want to learn how to help people better, whether it's medical or other humanitarian relief, and how to tell the story, taking a video, taking a photo, writing a report. And so we went from just a few of us walking around the jungle, giving help, hope, and love, to now 100 full-time teams that are spread out in every conflict area of Burma and giving humanitarian help and also telling the story of what's happening. And our job is not as a militia. We're not there to fight. We tell the Burma government, we're not against you. We pray for you. But if you attack your own people, we're going to stand with them. We're not pacifist. We tell our teams our role is not to fight. But if you feel God's leading you to fight, you can defend yourself. You can defend these people. Whatever happens, you can't run away. So to be a free Burma Ranger, you have to do three things. You have to do this for love because we don't pay those teams. They're all volunteers. You have to read and write in some language because you can't do good medicine or make reports unless you have some kind of literacy in some language. And the third is you can't run if people can't run. So if they run, you can run with them. But if they can't run, you've got to help them. At that moment, if fighting the enemy to protect them as, you, as they run is something you feel you need to do, you can do it. You have to find your own weapons, but you can do it. So we are not a militia, but we're also not pacifists. And most of the time, we're able to run away with everybody. That's 90%. But every now and then, such as the Battle of Mosul, ISIS came right to us. And I was wounded four times. One of my team members was killed. Three others wounded. So we did face ISIS. And in some of those cases, we fought back. Because if we didn't, we would be dead. And we didn't feel we should just give our lives to these people that were not acting out of any love. So we prayed for them. <laughs> I, I don't know how heaven works. I'm not in charge of it. I believe there is such a thing, but we will not get there by our merits. We will get there by God's love. So I prayed for my enemies saying, God, I'm not perfect. They're not perfect. They were, I think, on the wrong side. They were destructing things. We tried our best to stop them, which meant in some cases killing them. I'm sorry about that. I don't know how to do it better. Please forgive them and take them to heaven. Now, maybe God will never do that. It's not my business but I can ask because I want everyone, including myself to be forgiven our bad deeds and to love each other. Yes. My gosh. Is it, um, uh, 
what's it like dealing with a responsibility if one of your team is killed? That that must be quite a big thing to to negotiate. Yeah, I think I think the first thing about that is personal sorrow, because our teams are a family. Some of us have been together for twenty years. It's like my brother, my sister. I, just today, one of our team members was reading something from an Englishman named T.E. Lawrence or Lawrence of Arabia. Mm. And he wrote about battle with the Arab tribes in World War I. And he said, you know, this was not an army. These were families coming together to fight for freedom. We were all brothers. So we had a casualty. It was not a statistic. The, not just me and my, his comrades and his unit wept. The whole tribe wept because we all knew each other. And so we never want to just throw people into battle because it's not just a matter of winning and losing. These are precious lives that we know by name and we love each other. So every loss is a mortal loss to our souls for us survivors. So that's how I feel about our teams is we're family. And so when you lose someone, it, it hurts a lot because it's love. Well, yeah, you're, you're, you're clearly a very spiritual, spiritual man. Well, I just, I, I felt like I wanted to cry because we lost one of my close friends in Mosul. ISIS killed him. And then just uh, last year, not that many months ago, when the Turks invaded northern Syria, one of my men, who's Kachin from Burma, was killed right next to me. And so he's my brother. I, he raised my kids. My kids called him uncle and he's dead. You should have heard the scream of my children because, you know, they're they're with me, not in the fighting, but they're back at the casualty collection points or back where other families are fleeing. That's where my wife and children are also serving, not in the front lines, but back with other families. And as soon as they heard he was dead, the wail that came out of their mouths and their hearts, like my uncle was just killed. And so that first, my answer to question is a, it's a pain. It's a sorrow that doesn't go away. It diminishes, you know, time over time, your sorrows diminish, but they never go away for someone you loved. But I think it's okay. I, you know, I learned this one thing in seminary from a professor. Not everything professors say are true, but this was true for me. We can live well with sorrow. We can't live well with shame. Because sorrow, shame is about selfishness and doing wrong things. And you can't live with it. You've got to confess it and get rid of it. And I believe Jesus helps us do that. But sorrow is all about love. You're just going to be sorry about some things in life because you love people. It's okay. You're going to cry, but you can still have a good meal. You're going to cry, but you can still love your wife or your husband. You can cry and still do a good job at work. It's okay. It just hurts because it's about love. But the second thing I felt is the responsibility. I'm their leader. They wouldn't have been there except I said, let's go here. So even though... It was what we believe a Turkish drone strike that killed one of my best friends and brothers and teammates, Sao Sang, on November the 3rd, 2019. I felt instantly responsible. You know, right through the sorrow came Dave. If he hadn't followed you here, he'd be alive at home still. And I remember later that night, one of my friends who knew about it called me from the States and he prayed for me. He said, Dave, it is not your responsibility. It is not. Only God has control of these things in the end. And so you cannot carry that. You cannot carry it. It's a false burden. But I still feel it. And so it's not a light thing. So before we do any 
operation or any mission, we always pray and discuss together, everyone, what's the best we could do? Because if something bad happens, can we live with ourselves? So we don't want to be led somewhere by pride. We don't want to be led somewhere by anger. We don't want to be led somewhere by fear because we got to get away or by comfort. So if we're led by love, if that's really the motive after we talked it all through and prayed about it, if we're led by love, then when something bad happens, there's no shame in that. There's just sorrow. Yeah. Yes. And also, you know, it, it's right to die doing, doing something that's right, isn't it? And doing something that you love. I mean, that's, that's the way to live. Um, right. Right. You, we're all going to die anyway. That's sure. Right. No matter what you do, protect yourself. One day you're going to leave this earth. So the real question is, how are you going to live? What are you living for? And then if you die in the midst of doing something you love, something is helping others, it's sad, but it's okay. It's honorable. It was, it has a good fruit to it. Yeah. And can, Dave, can you give us an example of the sort of things that you do to help these, um, these struggling communities? Oh, I don't know if you can hear me, but we've got a bit of a freeze. Just going to pause the video a second. Ah, there we go. That's better. We had a bit of a pause, but that's to be expected in, in your part of the world, I'm guessing. Yeah, we're in Iraq right now. Yeah. I was just asking, Dave, could you give us some examples of the sort of um, support you're giving to these communities? Well, in Burma, we go on foot for one to five months at a time. And the teams are there year round. So I go in with, the, with my family and some of our other foreign volunteers and we link up with the local indigenous native people. They have their own teams we've trained, link up with them. They become our leaders because it's their, their country, their language, their people, their way and their routes. And then we go, for example, we go to a village that the Burma army has burned. And then you go to, and then you document by filming and photographing and reporting the destruction that's there and send it out to every source we can to say, this is a war crime, this is wrong. And then we go through the jungle and find where are the, where are the villagers at? And you go over two mountains, you find they're in a, a little valley and they've got food they've got on their back, they got water in the stream, but that's all. And now they've got two people that were shot from that attack that need treatments. So our medics will work on those two people. And then they've got four more that have malaria because now they're out of their houses. They don't have a mosquito net. They don't have a, a good smoky fire to keep the mosquitoes out. So now there's more malaria because they're all sharing the stream. There's people with dysentery. So our medics are working with that. And then how much food do you have? Well, we'll run out of food in a week. We carried a week of rice. So we'll get on the radio. We'll call back. Where's the nearest village or area that it hasn't been attacked that has food that we can get here? It has to come on horseback or person back. So that may take you a week to coordinate that food resupply. And then my wife and kids and other members of our team will gather the children, because they're there maybe for days doing nothing, just hiding and, and do a kid's program, singing songs, teaching them something in English, because they always want to learn something in English. We learn something from them in their language. We sing songs together. They play games. They learn a science lesson, like we have an anatomy apron that shows you the parts of the body and how germs come in your mouth, some basic hygiene and medical training how to um, clean a wound and 
try to teach them some practical things. They, they know a lot of things more than we do about living in the jungle, but maybe we learn, can teach them some things. Mostly it's just about encouraging them and saying the world's not over. What happened to you is wrong. We're standing with you. We're going to send the story out. And meanwhile, we can have fun. And little kids just want to have fun. And then we bring some soccer balls or some other little toys they can play with. And we have a big sports field in the middle of the jungle and wrestle around with each other and have a great day. And it's like, wow, I can still have fun. So my wife and kids will do that part. And then maybe a few of us will go and try to find where's the Burma army now and photograph them and document what they're still doing. So, and then some of our medical team will, will have dental equipment and they'll say anybody who has a sore tooth or needs a tooth pulled or filled, we can drill and fill, come here under a big tree. So you've got the medical clinic over here, the dental over here, the kids programs here, and a few people tracking on the Burma army. And you stay there as long as you're needed, one, three, four, five days and go to the next place. Load up the horses with supplies or villagers help you carry loads because you're carrying all these supplies with you. There's no roads we can use. Burma's full of roads, but up in the mountains, there's few. And most of those are controlled by the Burma army. So we're using trails. So it's on foot or with horses. And that's a typical mission. In the Middle East, it's desert, roads, vehicles, but it's the same concept. You drive to where the people have been chased away. You set up a medical program, a dental program. You do a kid's program to encourage kids. You hand out blankets. And now we don't have to wait a week to get stuff. You can drive one hour back to the nearest uh, liberated town and buy blankets, tarps, rice, food, bread, tents, whatever's needed, bring it back, distribute it. And then meanwhile, another part of our team will go to the front line, let's say with a Kurds are holding off ISIS. And then our, our team will go there. And if a Kurds shot, we augment the existing medical facilities. There's always some kind of medical or humanitarian service already being done by their own people. It's everywhere in the world. So we're not the answer. We're not a big thing at all. We're very small, but we come to encourage them and augment what they already have. So you only have one medic for 50 people in the front line while well, I'm bringing three more to help you. And we subordinate ourselves to them. We don't take over anything. We couldn't anyways, but we don't want to. When I met General Mustafa in the Battle of Mosul, I said, I've got these five ambulances. I've got two armored vehicles that were given to us. My family's here. I've got 12 volunteers, five are top line medics. The rest will do other things. I've got $100,000 cash right here. All of this is yours. Tell us how you want us to support you because we're going to do this together. And that's how we work everywhere. Did you get a lot more support and many more volunteers coming forward after you rescued the little girl? We had more people that wanted to come, yes, because I think all of us, and myself included, want to do something useful in our lives. We want to do something um, about life, and we want to fight evil. All of us want to do that. And so that, that rescue symbolizes those things. Um, but that rescue is in a context, the context of we've been 20 years doing this already. We've been a year in the Battle of Mosul. We had developed trust between us and the Iraqis where they would give us a tank to run behind. We had trust and relationships with the American military where they would give us smoke in coordination with the Iraqis to make a screen so ISIS couldn't see us. We had a team that could function together. We had people back in Thailand and America praying for us. It was a, it was a joint effort that enabled this little girl to be rescued. Mm. It wasn't a one person show. It was a bunch of people together 
that enabled it. And that was a big blessing. Her whole family was killed, but her grandmother was down near Baghdad. So we were able to reunite her with the grandmother. And that just feels good. So it was good to be part of it, but more people wanted to join us. And we just basically tell people, you can have any religion, you can have no religion. We have all kinds in FBR. We're not religious organization. I'm a follower of Jesus. Not a good one, but I want to. Most of our leadership are Christians, but you don't have to be. And you have to do this for love. You have to really feel the way I put it is God sent you. And then come and try and see if it's a fit. And sometimes we have too many volunteers. We don't know how to use them or they don't speak the languages. So there's nothing they could do right away. So sometimes we'll say, please don't come yet. We have no job for you. Um, but generally we say, come and see if it's a fit. You know, it may not be, but you just look, know if, when you come. Do you get, um, I want to come back and talk about the incident because obviously it was quite a, a, a well, incredibly brave thing you did. Um, and also it's quite high profile. It, it made all the mainstream headlines back, um, back in, your, in, in your home country. But when you're returning and people are returned to the States or, or Europe or where, wherever they volunteer from, are they ever getting any hassle from the authorities um, being suspected of you know, being guerrilla fighters or something? Uh, no, our, we've never faced that. Um, even among our English volunteers, because we are a recognized humanitarian group. We do not go there to fight, even though we did fight frequently in the Battle of Mosul. And everybody knew that. We didn't hide it. All those battles were against ISIS and in self-defense to protect ourselves and the people we're serving. No one has had a problem with that. I think there have been, so we've never had that problem. Um, we've had some of our people um, questioned at the airport, what were you doing? And we just, we always tell them, tell them the truth, tell them everything and give them the annual report, give them the DVD links. We have no secrets. So we've had no problems. I know that some nations have given problems to let's say British volunteers that have gone over to help the Syrian Kurds, the YPG, which um, I'm very surprised that anyone would give them a problem. It's um, very hypocritical considering the Americans, the British and others directly support the YPG Kurds who are fighting ISIS. So that to punish a British citizen who goes to do the exact same thing in the cause of freedom, it makes no sense. And I'm really grateful for authorities in England um, and different people in governments like John Burko, Baroness Cox, um, and others that are, are defending people who are falsely accused of being on the wrong side. They're on the same side the British Army's on against ISIS. So um, I hope that that's resolved because I think all those volunteers were serving on the correct side. And it's the same side the coalition's on. But for, for us, because we're not part of the militia and we haven't joined the local militias, we've never had that problem. Yeah. Oh, in England, they, they hate all of us, Dave. <laughs> they, if they could make a law for breathing, they, they'd make one and it would be so... <laughs> it, yeah, that's a, whole nother, uh, that's a whole nother avenue again. So... Um, yeah, I, I, I personally think that those people that volunteered to go help the Kurds or the Christians or the Arabs stand against ISIS, those are all heroes. They did heroic things. 
you know, doing a heroic thing doesn't make you hero all the time. You, you can be a terrible person, but you can't take away from someone the fact they did the right thing on the right side. And so I, if I think what England should do is say, thank you, brave men and women who risked your lives to stand against evil. Thank yes, exactly. That's certainly my view. I want to say thank you. And um, you're in Iraq at the moment. What's so? What is the the, the political and and uh, conflict situation there at the moment? Because you really hear nothing now in the Western media. Well, in Iraq itself, they have a more stable government than they've had in the last two or three years. There's a lot of tension and, and conflict in terms of protests and riots between different factions um, in Iraq. It's ongoing. However, the current government is, is keeping things relatively stable. It's not war. Um, in Kurdistan, it's very peaceful. Northern Iraq, the Kurdish regional government, very peaceful. And they have their own internal tensions as well, but there's no war here. Over in Syria, Northeast Syria, where the Kurds are um, strong, but there's also Christians, Arabs, and Yazidis. This is where the coalition, which includes England, America, England, and other nations, have stood behind what's called the Syrian Democratic um, Forces. And these are a coalition of Arabs and Kurds and Christians and Yazidis, led by the Kurds, um, who have been standing against ISIS. And ISIS sleep cells and terrorist cells are still active. Almost once a week, there are ambushes by small ISIS cells, but ISIS controls no territory. Uh, but recently, back in October, November 2019, the US government made the mistake, first the moral mistake of abandoning the Kurds when we said we'd stand with them. And then the tactical and strategic mistake of pulling troops, our troops, basically our observers, um, off the Turkish-Syrian border. And we did that. Turkey launched an invasion using proxy forces called the Free Syrian Army in front. And that displaced permanently over 200,000 Kurds and displaced Christians, displaced, displaced everybody in that path. And the Turkish-backed soldiers took an area uh, between Tel Albiad and Rasalain or Sarikani, uh, roughly 100 something kilometers by 30 kilometer rectangle. And they took it and occupied it and displaced all those people. And that situation though is static. That there was, it was an ongoing fight as people were pushed out of that box. But right now there's a rough front line and they're shelling almost every day somewhere, machine gunning and some wounded now and then, but it's kind of static warfare. But the threat that the Kurds feel is any day Turkish government can make another push. And that's that's going on in Northeast Syria. So what you see in Northeast Syria is a, a stationary, static, um, low intensity conflict. Of course, you're 100% dead if that hits you, but a few casualties, but, but weekly something's happening in this area the Turks um, invaded with their proxies. And then you have these ISIS sleep cells here and there. Other than that, it's relatively stable. And when you cross the Euphrates, and go into the part of Syria that Assad controls, ISIS sleep cells also popping up, actually more there than in Northeast Syria, but they control no terrain, but they're a threat. You have the Iranians that have crossed over from Iraq into the south side of the Euphrates that are supporting Assad that complicate things. You have the Russians there as well. Um, but then when you go and go to the Northwest part of Syria, 
Afrin, Jarablus. These are areas that were predominantly, especially Afrin was predominantly Kurdish. Turkey invaded back in 2018, again, using proxies, but also their own forces, pushed the Kurds and the Christians and the Yazidis out and repopulated that area of Northwest Syria called Afrin with many Muslim radicals that were down in East Ghouta, in Idlib and Damascus areas. When they lost it, they came up there. So it was an ethnic cleansing of a sort that took place in Northeast Syria because the Turks wanted it that way. And then Idlib is an area of on and off fighting held by, Idlib is held by a group of mostly jihadi um, Arabs supported by Turkey. And then Assad and his, Syrian Arab army are fighting them, supported by Russia. That's kind of at a stalemate now. What an absolute mess. It, it's almost impossible for an outsider to, to understand, isn't it? Yeah. Gosh. But I mean, and I think for us, that makes our role, if we think about what can we do, then our role gets simple. Our role is not military or political. Our role is help the person in front of you. Treat the yeah. wounded, try to make the kid happy, try to find out a lot of the assistance that's needed is beyond our capacity. So what we can do, though, is help a little bit and contact bigger NGOs and say, hey, this is what we see. Can you help them and try to be a link between large scale help and the small scale that we give? And going back to, to the incident with the girl, um, that. I'm really surprised there's so many videos of it on YouTube because it's pretty graphic, isn't it? There's there's the best part of a hundred dead bodies on the ground and this little top just poking her head up, clearly, clearly still alive. Um, do you get used to seeing such massacre? I mean, I, 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 that sounds really rude. I didn't mean it like that. I, I, I just meant that, how do you deal with the trauma? I think I never get used to it. I think like, um, but there's a, what? It's like, if you were a surgeon on doing your first operation, cutting someone open to do a heart surgery, you would feel a certain thing. I want to keep this person alive. This is serious. I'm doing everything in to save them. But wow, this is really quite shocking. But when you've done a 500 surgeries, that initial cut open is not as shocking as it was. You're used to it in that way, but your heart's still the same. I got to save this person. And so on one hand, yes, after you've seen so many dead people, you think, okay, that's more dead people, but it didn't change your heart. <laughs> this is really like, so, whereas someone who's seen it the first time may go, oh my gosh, I may not have that reaction in my face because I've seen it before, but I have it in my heart. Like, oh Lord. And sometimes when I see so much over time, it's just, I just want to cry. Um, and crying is good. Gets, gets it, you get out of that. Um, it does not very useful to cry in the middle of a battle. It's better afterwards, but that in that in that case, we had seen many dead people, including civilians and children, up to that point. Who, who had shot them, Dave? Well, this was in it was ISIS. This was in um, the northwest 
corner of Mosul by the by the northernmost or first bridge. And the bridge has been taken out and ISIS has been pushed down to this part of the city, which a little bit south was also included the old city. There's the last stronghold, the last stand of ISIS in Mosul on the west northwest side. And we were part of the, uh, the push. Uh, and we'd seen ISIS kill many civilians. But on May the 30, 30th and 31st, there was a big influx of people into our frontline area, civilians, many of whom had been shot at a higher rate than we experienced. And they told us they're shooting in all the women and children now. Before, it'd be just sporadic. And they've issued, ISIS has issued a proclamation or a fatwa saying it's better to kill your own family than let them fall in the hands of the infidels or enemy. So some ISIS were shooting families. And we could see that because people are carrying shot babies and women are shot, little girls are shot, again, at a higher rate than we experienced. And May 30th and 31st, we just treated these wounded. And then I remember May the June the 1st, I thought, where's this coming from? Where's the, where are they coming out of? So we went from our CASI collection point, only about 700 meters through the streets to the kind of front line, which is the highway next to that bridge in this hospital and Pepsi pack factory complex, actually soft drink factory. And we could see all these things that looked like rags in the, in the street. You couldn't really stick your head out in the street because there's so much shooting. But then you look and you go, those aren't rags, those are people. And here I see a little baby in swaddling clothes, maybe one month old, with a bullet hole through its head. And I see the mother sprawled out behind it with a bullet through her head. The snipers knew exactly what they're doing. Shoot the baby first, this is evil. Let the mother see it, shoot the mother. We saw people in wheelchairs flipped over, shot. Help the, you know, the person pushing, shot first. And then the person in the chair shot. And there was four people shot out of their wheelchairs. And there turned out to be about 150 total down the street and around the corner, people shot and killed men, women, children. But when we first saw it, we saw motion against there was a wall on the far side of the road. This is about 150 meters from where we could be, as close as we could get. And we, we could see, well, actually we could get closer by paralleling the street and looking up, but there was really no good way to cross there. Maybe we were 70, 80 meters away, but the normal place, 150 meters, you could see the whole thing. And there's bullets coming all the time. And ISIS had, taken the hospital, used it as a battle, as, as a strong point, and the Pepsi factory in the surrounding area. And they had Cornet anti-tank systems, so you couldn't move armor down the road. They'd already taken armor out. They had RPGs, they could take out light armor. They had ZSU-23 anti-aircraft gun in ground plane mode, which you take out about everything. They had regular machine guns, rockets, mortars, rifles, sniper rifles, all that. All that's coming down the road. But there were about seven kids alive when I first saw it, and they were up against a wall. But as they came out, they were killed one by one. As we're watching this, it's horrifying. But you couldn't just run out there. You're going to be dead, like, now. You couldn't yeah. even get a tank out there. So it was horrifying to watch, but how can we help them? And I remember thinking, if it was my daughter there, and some person called me and said, I see your daughter, but if I go get her, I'm going to die. I would say to that person, please try. Please try. And I felt I got to try. So in the midst of all this, the kids being killed, and I called the Americans and worked with the Iraqis that were very close with both at that point. We don't work with the U.S. government at all. We get zero support from the U.S. government. We never have. But in the Battle of Mosul, there were some very brave generals who really wanted to help. 
And so we tried to do it the right way. Go talk to the Iraqis, let the Iraqis talk to the Americans, coordinate it, we'll verify it. We'll all work together and do it the proper way, but get smoke on the battlefield. And so the Americans did that. They delivered smoke from 155 howitzer, um, howitzers, canisters of smoke. They laid it right. I used my compass my, and I gave them my grid coordinates, the ISIS coordinates, the azimuth, the forward line of troops, the flot, to, to, to paint the picture from our view, what, where we were, where ISIS was, and where the people who needed help were to get the smoke in the right place. And then I talked to the Iraqis and said, you know, we need a tank, we need a bulldozer actually to clear rubble, and I'll drive Humvees behind it. And the Iraqi army said, no way, we'll lose all, we have almost no armor left. This is not the only battle, we feel terrible. We can't just throw all our soldiers away, it's impossible. Americans kept dropping smoke. I asked the Iraqi commander, I said, if Allah told you to do it, would you do it? He said, yes, if Allah did. So I held his hands and I said, Allah, please tell the commander what to do. I didn't tell him what to do. I said, you tell him what to do in Isa's name, in Yeshua's name, in, which means in Jesus' name. Amen. And he opened his eyes, I opened my eyes. I said, what did Allah tell you? He said, one tank, take it or leave it. No bulldozer, no Humvees, one tank. I said, I'll take it. And I thought, I'm dead. Because <laughs> my plan was to drive behind the tank, right? And that keeps us alive. It also makes a very quick rescue. Not going to get that option. So I just turned around and I said, whoever wants to go, let's go. We said the Lord's Prayer and started running behind the tank. And ISIS is shooting at us and we're driving by the dead bodies. I remember the tank trying to avoid running over dead children. It was, it was so touching <laughs> even then. Bullets are coming by, the ISIS shot mortars, RPGs, machine guns bouncing off the tank, and the tank is shooting back its main gun, and the coaxial, pop, 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 pop. What brave Iraqis they were. They were right in front of us. And every tank I'd known of on that street had been destroyed, and they knew they could die. And they're, who are they dying for? A child of ISIS, because that's who's left there. These are kids of ISIS. So these men were willing to risk their lives, they all had families, for a child of the enemy. Wow. That's love, man. It's courage. Mm. And they blasted away and we got behind and Americans gave more smoke. And I ran out and grabbed the girl who was laying there. Two of my men, um, Sky and Ephraim, both ex-military, jumped out behind and laid down covering fire. One of them, um, Ephraim, was shot. And we ended up, and then we had Monkey from Burma. He's the guy that actually filmed it. He films everything. He's my main film guy. And then we had... Um, we had a guy from Syria, a volunteer, refugee who could speak Arabic. He's running along, not really knowing why he's there. And we all got not only the girl out, there was two men that were wounded and laying in swallow. We found they were alive. All the other kids were dead. So we got the two men, the girl, start moving behind the tank. Ephraim shot. One of the men we're trying to carry is dropped. He's killed. Now we've only got one guy and the girl and we get them out. And we take them both to the hospital. I called my wife, who's right there at the Kazi collection point. She takes the little girl. And later on, the Iraqi army is able to find the, the grandmother in near, near Baghdad. And we're able to reunite the girl with her grandmother. Mm. And now we know them and we try to help. And so that was a blessing. And that was a wonderful thing to be part of. But again, it was people praying for us. I believe it was the power of God. It was the Americans giving smoke in coordination with the Iraqis, the Iraqis giving a tank, the tank crew willing to do it, our team willing to run, the people in the back 
Um, my, my, one of my daughters was also filming and driving an ambulance. We had other volunteers, one girl named Hosanna, who's doing everything in between. My wife, my son, other team members. It was a big group together um, doing this. Is it um, frustrating, David, when you look at these conflicts and it's almost impossible to know who who is funding this? You know, the guys you think are the, the good guys can be the bad guys. The, there's, there's so many um, co corporate interests in, in, well, the way the world is put is, is being run. Is, is it ever frustrating that you've got these greedy little businessmen and women that are funding these conflicts on purpose to, to serve their, their aim or, or is, do you not get involved in that kind of, um, that way of thinking because you've got a job to do? Well, I think when things are done for personal gain at the expense of others' freedoms or lives, it's always horrible. And when governments betray the people they promised to help, it feels like a mortal wound in my soul. And so, yes, I've been very frustrated. Yes, I've been very saddened. Yes, I've been sickened when I see wrong things being done by people in power that hurt other people. Then I try to remember. And sometimes also the people you're helping will do you wrong. I mean, we treated many ISIS wounded, ISIS wounded children. And the mother sometimes threatened us saying, we'll kill you. I'm like, are you crazy? We just saved your kid's life. What do you mean you kill me? And um, you know, you're a prisoner. Have you realized you're a prisoner? And you could be dead, but nobody killed you. And we're treating your daughter who would die if we didn't treat them. And you're cursing me. In those moments, whether it's help ingratitude or outright um, betrayal or using people, all these things disappoint us. I try to remember, I'm not working for this patient, really. I'm not working for this and this. God, I'm working for you. And you sent me here. And so I can take it because you can take it. You be in front of me, God. You take the disappointment, the frustration, the betrayal, the ingratitude. I know you can take it. Help me remember I serve Jesus. I don't serve this person. And so then I can take it. Then I can calm down and go, I'm sorry. You've been given two sets of food already and you just stole the other one from your friend. We're not going to give you anymore. But we'll be here tomorrow to help you again. Yeah. So you can't ruin my day. I mean... I'm tempted to let you in my day, but you can't because I don't work for you, man. I work for God who sent me. And besides, you should know something. I'm also selfish and greedy and weird and ungrateful sometimes and just unreasonable. I'm just a little person. So I work for the big one. And that helps me reorient. Um, and also sometimes when you see people do bad things, I just feel sorry for them and pray that they would stop. Or when I see people ungrateful, I realize, you know, sometimes I'm ungrateful. And have I been under the same pressure they've been under? No. So just stick with your job. That's what I have to get back to. But to answer your question, yes, <laughs> I've been frustrated, angry, saddened a lot. Yeah. But, but I hope that I'm frustrated, angry, and saddened whenever I make mistakes, not just when other, others do. 
So David, I'm, I'm conscious you're a very busy man and you've got um, people to go and save. So my, my last question is, <laughs> um, do, do you ever, do you think you could ever put this life behind you? Are you, are you ever going to retire or is that, is that not, not an option? I don't think about retiring. I think that as we get older, certain capabilities diminish. That's just, that's just life. Um, but love never has to diminish. And so there'll always be a way to serve. And if our organization continues, and it's not that important that it does, it's just one little human entity that does some things, then other people will step up more and more to run it and do their part. I wanna be part of this as long as I feel God has me do it. And right now as a family, we're united in it. As a team, we're united. I like to do it. To me, it's trying to put God first. Where am I supposed to be as spiritual? Second, I think of it, oppression is wrong. That's intellectual. I want to stand against it. Love. I love these people. They love me. That's emotion. That's for love. And then last, physical. I like the action, man, just like you. You're a Royal Marine Commando, one of the best fighting forces in the entire history of the world. You did not get there by accident. You got there because you love it and you love the action and you're not so afraid or whatever you're afraid of, you're going to overdo it anyway. And you are, you are the kind of person the enemy hates to see. And then you suffer a lot to get there. So that's the physical. We like that stuff. So to me, I try to keep it in the order of spiritual first, intellectual, emotional together and physical last. The physical does have a part, but when it gets in front, it usually messes everything up. So if it's in the right order, then you get to enjoy those things. So, I mean, kind of like marriage, right? The physical part is super important. You want to sleep with your wife and that's awesome. That's how babies are born. And that's awesome. It's a, it's a great, um, what pleasure, but if it becomes the first thing, Pretty soon, if that's the most important thing, you're going to be sleeping with all kinds of other people because that's the most important thing. And pretty soon, or you're just going to objectify your wife. And if she doesn't do this or that, then she's no good. And the whole thing becomes ruined. And pretty soon, you can't even do that. So when it's in the right order in our lives, to me, when spiritual is first and intellectual, emotional together are second, then the physical needs we have, whether it's food, water, sex, sports, whatever, they're in the right order. They don't imprison you, but you can enjoy them. So often I get these things all in the wrong order. And then I have to say, I'm sorry, I have to back up or I get punished and find out, ooh, I was wrong. And then say, God, I'm sorry, wife, friends, I'm sorry I said that or did that and start again. But that's the order I do it in. But I love the action. I'm just grateful I can be on these adventures because I love it. I bet. And David, um, if people want to support you either financially or, or to volunteer, where, where can they find you? They can look at our website. It's freeburmarangers.org, freeburmarangers.org. And they can contact us anytime and someone will answer. And if no one answers, just keep sending an email to that. Someone will. We're all volunteers. I, I wrote a book called Do This for Love. Free Burma Rangers in the Battle of Mosul. You can learn more by, you can buy that book oh. on Amazon. Um, Free Burma Rangers. It's Do This for Love, Free Burma Rangers in the Battle of Mosul. And that's a book that talks about our experience in Mosul. There's a movie called Free Burma Rangers that you can get on Amazon 
it also shows what's happening. But our website's freebomberrangers.org. Brilliant. David, thank you so much for coming on the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. I think you've bought about 20 T-shirts. Um, much love to you and your family and, and all of your all of your volunteers. Uh, keep doing what you're doing. And to everybody at home, uh, massive love to you all. Thank you for watching another episode. Cheers, cheers. Thank you, Chris. You're a man of love and courage, and may God bless you and give you your heart's desire in Jesus' name. Love you, brother. Oh, I love you too, mate. Thank you so much. Real thing, man. You're always welcome wherever we are at. Um, as you know from your time in the Royal Marines, most of it's preparation and waiting and doing this drinking tea and loading stuff. It's not very exciting. It's exactly like being a Royal Marine. And every now and then it's like, awesome. <laughs> this is why I joined. Yes, I might take you up on that as long as you can. Um, yeah, as long as you come running out to rescue me if I get pinned down. <laughs> I think it's the other way around. I would do that for you, but I have a feeling that you're a bit ahead of me. And what a great um, military force you belong to. That's um, one of the best in the whole world. Awesome. Yes, yes. Very, it's very kind you say. Um, yes, yes. Thank you. Yeah. Well, and I hope God brings us together, whether it's Thailand at our base or in Burma on a mission or in the Middle East or Armenia. I mean, who knows? Yes, Thailand's got to be one of my favorite places in the world. I think I'm fortunate to have been there three or four times now. And um, it okay. does make me wonder why, <laughs> why I live in England. Um, well, yes. we have a home there. And we have horses and a lot of property someone gave us. If you're ever there, whether I'm there or not, it's in Chiang Mai. Just use it. It's pretty neat. We have trucks and you can use them all. Wow. That's an offer I can't refuse. I, I better get going. Um, and I appreciate the time you've given me. And love you, Chris. You're a good man, man. You too, mate. You too. Thank you so much, David. Let, let's speak again and do a catch up. Okay. Oh, yes. Maybe we're going, we're trying to go to Syria tomorrow. And so we'll catch up with you later. Yeah, I'll give you a report from there. And as my dad always okay. says, keep your head down. Yeah, I love your dad. Thanks. <laughs> we'll do. Cheers. God bless cheers. you, Chris. Bye bye. Bye bye. Friends, thank you for listening to the Bought the T shirt podcast. Please like, subscribe, and share. And don't forget to follow me on social media. Username Chris Thrall. Instagram, Chris.thrall. Thank you.